Well, good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. That's right. I always love doing that because you get to see what tradition people come from. Some of y'all are high church. Some of you are like, I don't like, you know, charismatic, non-denominational. You're like, I have no idea what just happened. All the same, welcome to Collective Church. My name is Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here at uh, Collective. We're so excited to have you with us today. If you have your Bibles there with you, would you turn or tap to John chapter 20? Now, if you don't have a Bible with you today, no worries. We're going to have uh, the text behind me on the slides as well. But once you find your way to John chapter 20, would you join me in standing today as we read from God's word? Similar to uh, what you might have seen a moment ago, raising our hands in worship or kneeling in prayer, we here stand when we read from the scriptures, one, as a marker of the embodied nature of the Christian faith, more on that in a moment, but also as a way of declaring with our bodies our reverence and our respect for these scriptures and the fact that we believe that the Spirit of God speaks through them when we open them as a community. And so today we're going to read from one of the resurrection accounts in the four Gospels, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then you can sit right back down. John chapter 20 says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there as well. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but now folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and there she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. And so, Father, we gather today as a people of, 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 of mixed uh, postures and ways of responding to uh, the claim of the empty tomb. For some of us, it is the guiding 
framework for our life is the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus. For others of us here, we've been dragged along by those kind of weirdos to investigate, to consider, and maybe to get some free deviled eggs out of it at the end of this. And God, for all of us though, there is something astounding about this claim. And we pray that today you'd help us not to move past it or to assume it, but God, to realize what it means for our lives and for our world. Pray you'd speak today. And we pray, amen. Well, why don't you go ahead and be seated. Well, if you are looking for a more frenetic and fast-paced account in all of Scripture, I don't think you can look much further than the resurrection stories. I mean, as you read through these, it just seems like everybody is tripping over one another, trying to figure out what's occurred. It can be difficult to keep track of exactly what's happening here. Mary shows up, and the body was stolen. She runs to the disciples, and the disciples almost trip over each other, running out the door, literally racing. I love how uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Lart, most agree, this being John, the author of the gospel, he makes sure to put in the fact that he beat Peter in the foot race. <laughs> Literally racing there, but when they get there, they're unable to discern, they're confused at what's going on, and so in, instead of staying and asking questions, they just go home. Mary stays, and, and not only do angels appear and ask her a question, they ask her one question, and then they seemingly disappear. Like, the angel, like, that, like what kind of a story has angels show up, and they're like a footnote, and we just keep, no, what, angels, what? And then they're gone. Mary then turning around, seeing Jesus, supposes him to be the gardener, whatever that means, why that's in there. And then she sees Jesus, and then Jesus immediately says, don't, don't, don't cling to me. Like, don't touch, she like falls on her feet. That's, you think that'd be the right thing to do, is give Jesus a big, you know, resurrection hug. And he says, don't cling to me. The whole story is confusing, difficult to keep up with. As many have noted before, all this hectic Easter energy, we could call it, in these accounts, actually gives some credence to the story's authenticity. See, if these stories were, as some have claimed, you know, Da Vinci Code kind of stuff, that the resurrection was concocted and whipped up at some later date, and they had all the time in the world to write up these stories, I, I think we could, well, simply put, the stories would make a little bit more sense. It just seems like everything is going. As, as one agnostic scholar put it, it looks as though they were struggling to describe something for which they didn't have adequate language. Tripping over themselves and even tripping over their words, trying to describe the mystery of what has taken place in the empty tomb. But also, as we read through these first Easter accounts, it doesn't feel that not only we're peering into the confusion of that first Easter, but also that the authors are inviting us along for the ride. They are hoping to catch us up in that same energy, into the confusion, into the rushing, into the racing and investigating, the pondering and peeking, the peering in to ask the questions. As we read the stories of John here, or Matthew, Luke, or Mark, it's almost like they have brought us to the empty tomb ourselves and are asking, what have you done with the resurrection claims of Easter? What have you done with the empty tomb? And that really is a question that we shouldn't ignore. Because as likely as something may seem at first glance, if the potential truth of a claim is big enough, you'd at least look into it. This past week, we received a letter that our monthly mortgage could be reduced by up to 60%. Now, for some of you, the very fact of owning a house in Los Angeles is already a miracle. The fact that we got it under asking price without a bidding war at a relatively affordable place, that's like on par with the empty tomb right now living in Los Angeles. You're like, I want whatever God this guy has. Like, sign me up. But back to this letter. 
You see, what we had in this letter was opening up this envelope and reading the potential good news, which even though it was likely a scam, spoiler alert, it was, we at least looked into it to confirm it. Why? Because the potential of the statement being true was too good to pass up on. And so I'll ask again, what have you done with the resurrection claims of Easter? You see, for some of us, there are many ways that we can respond. I think we'll for the sake of time, look at just three briefly. For some of us, we hear the claims of Easter and we dismiss the empty tomb. Resurrections don't happen. Dead people don't get up again. Easter is nothing but maybe the delusions or most likely the the deceptions of these gullible ancient people. Now to this claim, however, the first witnesses of the empty tomb, of the resurrected Jesus... Their confusion around the empty tomb, but also their conviction of the empty tomb throw a wrench in the works of those of us that would dismiss it. You see, their confusion shows that not one of them assumed that empty tomb, Jesus must be up again. Oh, we all know that's exactly how things work down here. No, they were like you and me. Let's not have the chronological snobbery because they didn't have an iPhone that they were idiots. They knew dead people don't get back up again. And yet, in that confusion, on the other side of it, every single one of the 500 people that saw Jesus in those 40 days after his resurrection, every single one of them were persecuted, and most of them martyred and died for this. A scholar, scholar uh, Paula Fredrickson, who is not a Christian herself, wrote, I know in their own terms what those first disciples saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that's what they really, that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Here you have an agnostic scholar that is even saying, no matter what you think about the empty tomb, you can't dismiss it. There's something to it. Now, That might be some of you here that are with us today. Maybe you dragged along by someone that you would, by all counts, dismiss the claims of the empty tomb. I would encourage you, like Peter, like John, like Mary, to stoop, to peek, to ponder into the claims of the empty tomb. I know for me, I I told Pastor Lorenzo when they were interviewing me for the role that one of the things they should know about me is I wake up most days an agnostic. And what I mean by that is I'm naturally a skeptic. And so I regularly have to kind of rework through the, the, the verify, the historicity of the thing that, that this whole Christian faith is an intellectual suicide. And so I would invite you to peek and to ponder. You can come and talk to me. As, as a starting point, I would say that the main thing that is always most convicting for me is that the, the life and the death and even the teachings and even the miracles of the life of Jesus are some of the most historically verifiable facts of the ancient world. Not just by Christians, but not just by Jewish writers, but by Roman writers. You can't get away from the fact that Jesus historically lived, he taught this mode of the kingdom, he identified himself as God, and he was crucified. The other historical fact you can't get around is that in the decades following, you had this movement that erupted across the Roman world, moving from just 12 or so disciples on year one to by year 300 being somewhere around 6 million. 
And all of them were proclaiming within these decades, not only that Jesus had rise from the dead, but that he was Lord and God and they worshiped him and they were unafraid of death. The very question is, what do we do then with this weekend in Jerusalem to fill in the gap? What bit of data makes the most sense? Seems to me the resurrection does. I'm not saying that you necessarily need to get there today, but I am saying that I don't think the resurrection is intellectual suicide. Now, on the other side of this, for some of you, maybe you don't dismiss the empty tomb, but you spiritualize the resurrection. Like Fredrickson, yes, the disciples must have seen something, but maybe it was a ghost. Maybe it was a hallucination of some kind. Maybe it was a felt presence of Jesus, though now gone, is still with us here in our hearts. And so what matters is not the bodily resurrection per se, but these universal truths that all good people can affirm. Death is not the end, and from suffering, good can triumph. This is the popular view in a city of Los Angeles where many of us identify as spiritual but not religious. What we mean by that is that all of the religions of the world are in some sense a buffet of offerings that we can pick from. So we get a little bit of resurrection, eternal life, hope over here, and we get a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Native American. We get a little bit, we, we build up our buffet and we make our own little custom spirituality for us to live off of. But to this again, these first witnesses of the resurrection, they've got another wrench to throw in the works for those of us that would want to receive the resurrection this way. First and foremost being, they had language. They had a word for ghosts. They had language. They had ideas around hallucinations. They had ideas about the felt presence. Even, even for Jews, they, they had this really weird story back with King Saul and this like ghost apparition of Samuel, the prophet. We don't have time to go into that today. But I say all this to say, these early Jews, the people that were the first witnesses to the resurrection, they had language for ghosts. They had understandings culturally of that kind of, they had language for felt presence. And yet the story of the Christian movement doesn't begin in Acts chapter two, them praying together and feeling like God is present and empowering with us through the spirit of Jesus. We don't go straight to Acts two. We go to what? An empty tomb is the basis of what motivated them. In Luke's gospel, we find Jesus saying, I'm not a ghost. Key that they had language for it. You can touch me. You can look at me. I am flesh and bone, they say. If we want to believe that Jesus is just some spiritualized, resurrected spirit, I'm sorry, but the first witnesses have, that there's a wrench that you've got to deal with here. And similarly, for those of us that want to make the resurrection a story that we can all agree with, that people from all religions, can, we can all get behind. As Christianity, those early Christians made their movement into the pluralistic Roman world, one much like ours. They didn't come across all these other deities and gods and go, oh, yes, 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 you see, what we worship is just our version of what you have, but we're all saying the same thing here. For them, the resurrection meant there was an entirely new world that's dawned, an entirely new God, singular, who is in charge, who is calling for allegiance and hope and life found only in him. And so it will not allow us to simply spiritualize the resurrection and to you take what you want out of it. There's something greater here that's going on. You see, the resurrection was a fundamental reshaping of this world, and the early Christians spurned any attempts to tame or domesticate the resurrection to fit the ends of someone else, whether that was Rome in their time, Nazi Germany, or the slave, slave owners in our own nation in history. When you spiritualize the resurrection, it means something. 
And most often, what it, when you take away the resurrection, you spiritualize it, you can then fit it into whatever framework that you want. But if the resurrection is not a spiritualized truth, but something greater, it means something for the way that we treat our bodies, and your bodies, and my bodies in particular. More on that in a moment. Now, the first two that I've just dealt with are those who would be more or less outside of the church. They dismiss or they spiritualize. Because a lot of you here are gathered today as Christians, I've got one for us as well. And this is another way that we misunderstand the resurrection story by what we could call heavenizing the resurrection. And what I mean by this is we take the Easter story to mean you can go to heaven when you die. That resurrection is just a fancy word for after your death, you getting to escape the icky, messy world and get to go to some immaterial cosmic cloud land of happiness. That salvation in this framework is fundamentally away from this world. And the Jesus of a heavenized resurrection looks more like Mark Zuckerberg offering the metaverse or Elon Musk and a ticket to Mars. That the hope of humanity is getting out of here. And to put it bluntly, the present world can simply just go to hell. I chose that word intentionally. The hope is escape. But notice, as you read through the Gospels, heck, as you read through the whole New Testament, nowhere does anybody go, Jesus is up from the dead, and you know what that means now? You can go to heaven when you die. You see, they have a, a third wrench. The early Christians had a lot of wrenches, apparently. And they have a third wrench to throw in here. Because that's not the way that the New Testament or any of the early Christians saw this. For them, Easter means that death is defeated, not just escaped. That death, as Paul writes, has been abolished, not just avoided. And that this entire world is being not escaped, but renewed. More on this in a moment. I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait, Scott. <laughs> See, for them, Easter meant more than just by and by flying away to glory land one day and going to God's celestial shore or even the hundred-year-old rapture theology that I'm going to fly away from this bad, evil, icky place and get away to some kind of immaterial spirit place where things are good. Now, these three aren't exhaustive, but I think these are the three primary ways that we are prone to miss the invitation of the Easter accounts, that we avoid getting caught up in the Easter energy of realizing the implications of the resurrection, to fall at Jesus' feet like Mary. Now, this realization takes a lifetime, and if I can confess, this is one of my least favorite parts about an Easter sermon, is I have to try to fit something that Christians have been trying to put into words for 2,000 years into a short sermon so y'all can go home and eat ham. We're just, next, next year, we're just going to bring food here, and I'm just going to go all day. So for the sake of getting us home, and also for our kids' volunteers, because you guys doped your kids up with sugar and then dumped them off with them. <laughs> Here's three realizations of Easter. Three realizations if we actually look into the tomb and we put it all together. The first thing that the resurrection means is that matter matters. What do I mean by this? As you read through the resurrection accounts, and this resurrected Jesus looks so earthy, doesn't he? He's seen, he's held, he's touched. If you go to the following story after what we just read today, it is Thomas in his doubt that says, unless I can see and I can touch the wounds that were made, I will not believe. And what does he do? He sees and touches him. In the following story in John chapter 21, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible is a foodie, is the resurrected Jesus cooks and makes breakfast and eats it with his disciples. 
And even if we go back to John chapter 20, I was talking to some of the guys before this. One of my favorite things is the earthiness of Jesus' resurrection is he makes his bed and he folds his laundry on Easter morning. Do you notice that little line there? He takes the linens that were wrapping him off and the, specifically the linens that were wrapping his face were folded and set in the tomb. Some of you with like kids that you can't get them to make their bed or fold your laundry, maybe a spouse that you can't get to make the bed or fold the laundry. You can just look at them and say, if Jesus can do his chores on Easter Sunday, so can you. The resurrection of Jesus declares that this material world is not an illusion and it is not inherently or unredeemably evil, but the material physical world is the stage and grounds of God's new creation work and the very essence of God's mission, not to get you out of here and let the rest of the world go to hell. The mission of Easter is, is to get the hell out of earth, to drive this, this darkness out of this world, to reclaim the goodness of a material world, not escape it. And similarly, the resurrection of Jesus declares that not just the material world bodies, but your, your human body is not of little consequence in the scheme of God's mission and plan that you are not just a little spirit piloting around your meat sack around each day, filling it with the fuel to do, that this is what it means to be human, an embodied, living human. This is the, that our bodies are the means of God's work in the world. As the opening pages say, that we are the image of God, and that, does not, that doesn't mean your spirit or your conscience, that we, body, soul, and flesh, all together, this is what it means to be human. To realize Easter is to realize that God's work in this world is not immaterial, but God's resurrection power happens in the seeable, touchable, cooking and eating, laundry folding, bed making, rhythms of ordinary life. These are not the things to be escaped. These are the very places where God's power wants to meet you and I. And when we realize that matter matters, it's that your body, your hands, your feet, and even with the story that Thomas tells us, your scars matter to God. The abuse and the, with the pain that you bear, what's happened to you, matters in God's resurrection story. And the fact that he's raised as an Aramaic-speaking Jew means your ethnicity matters to God. These things are the places that God looks at and goes, it is good, seven times over in the first creation account. And on the new day of creation, with the resurrection, God once again says, yes, it is good, and I am remaking it as such. See, Easter is not the announcement that we'll be saved from this world, saved from our bodies, but we will be saved with them. We will be saved in them. That's the first realization of Easter. The second is that new creation has dawned. You see, in verse nine, there's that little line there with John and Peter where they look in and they, they see the empty tomb, but it says they didn't yet understand the scriptures. They didn't put together how the Bible fit together in this. Because you see, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament had, had a good bit to say about resurrection. But not like this. For, for the Jews, of which Jesus was one and his early followers were, as they read over the Hebrew scriptures, the understanding at Jesus' time by most was the resurrection would be a one-time future event when all of God's people would be raised to new bodies and God would once again reign over all of creation. He would bring justice and his righteousness and it would be on earth as it is in heaven forevermore. And that's what we're waiting for. But Easter Sunday, what do we do with one resurrection in the middle of time? This is unprecedented for them. 
It took them decades to understand what it meant. Because now this means that, that the world isn't just a simple bad, and then Jesus, and then the, you know, God of Israel comes and sets all things right, and now it's good. Time has gotten wibbly-wobbly and messy-messy. Because now it seems as though the inbreaking kingdom of God is making its way into the present, even in the midst of the darkness here and now. That there is a messy world that we live in, and yet God is at work. The new creation is happening here. We're not waiting for it. It's dawned. It's upon us. The early Christians would refer to Jesus and his resurrection coming out of the tomb as the first fruits of new creation. None of us are farmers anymore, but the first fruit would be the first sign of a greater harvest to come. And they would look at Jesus' resurrection as the historical evidence that God is committed to this world and his new creation is coming. It is dawning here in our midst. And so despite all of the appearances that seem to tell us otherwise, the resurrection of Jesus is there is a new creation coming. And this was not romantic optimism. The early Christians weren't, you know, in a little vacuum just going, you create everything, you know, everything's great. They weren't, you know, living like we were back before 20, what was it, 2018 before we just like, you know, became the dark timeline. They were living in the midst of Caesar, in the midst of empire oppression, in the midst of famines that would happen in Jerusalem in the following years. This was coming in the midst of their own persecution and for many of them, their martyrdom, where they were killed for this message. And even in the midst of the appearances seeming otherwise, they proclaim the empty tomb tells us that there is a new creation dawning and we will give our lives to live within that. This is what led the apostle Paul to say, not just at a, a creational level, but also on a personal level, that anyone who is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That so too is there is a new creation dawning with Easter that for those who enter in by faith to Jesus, he is my resurrected king. Paul says that new creation work is at work in you now. Not simply something that you're waiting for, but a new life available to you now. And, and what that means is you now live as a Christian, as an agent, as an ambassador of that new creation, heralding to the fact of what is to come. Now, some of you might you know, want to raise your hands and say, well, what about the failure of so many Christians to actually live this way? Yes. The failure doesn't negate the job description. And in fact, come back next week as we begin a series to figure out how we can recapture this. But the other question that some of you may ask about new creation dawning is why just dawning? Why not now? Why not just, let's kick this, let's get this off. Let's come on. This world's awful. Have you seen the news, God? Why are you waiting so, why are you taking the, the long, patient ramp with so much? There's more than can be said in one sermon, but it seems to at least get us moving in the right direction that the God of love is not content to foreclose on those currently wooed and won by the darkness of this world. And he has, in the midst of the darkness, looking over the cost and the benefit, the, 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 the potential of keeping his arms open for as many people to find this new creation life as possible now is worth the cost. And you might wrestle with that. And we could take that to him in prayer. But that's the second. Now finally, the third. The third realization of Easter is that the God and Father of Jesus' resurrection is now the God and Father of our resurrection. In verse 17, we had that weird line where Mary seems to be doing the right thing and falling at Jesus' feet and calling him teacher, but he says, don't cling to me. You know, Jesus is like, you know, touchy feet. He's kind of like, you know, I, he needs his personal space. 
What is, what is he getting at here? And he says, why? I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, don't cling to me. Mary, you have a task. You have a job in front of you. And it is to go tell my brothers, to tell the disciples, my God and Father and your God and Father. If you've been at Collective for a while, you know that I love to just geek out on little things like this, to ask why. Why wouldn't Jesus just say, our God and Father? He does this in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Why not, he would refer to our Father, our God all the time. Why here make the distinction of my God and your God, my Father and your Father? It seems as though Jesus is trying to drive something home in his now resurrected body. That the very God and Father who's raised me from the dead is now your God and Father. That raised me, so he too, he will raise you. For Jesus, Easter is not just that by his God and Father, he got up from the dead, but now God, he is our God and Father who too will resurrect us. I love Romans chapter eight, where the apostle Paul details how now we have the spirit of God within us through whom we call on God as Abba, it's Aramaic, Papa, Father. But then he goes right after that into verse 11 and says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The aim of Easter is not just that the new creation is dawn. It's not just that matter matters, but because those two things are true, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will so too raise those in Christ. Those who call on God as God and Father are those who the resurrection is now made available for them as well. And so this is why I, I get frustrated with the heavenized language that we so often talk about or sing that resurrection just is a fancy word for going to heaven when you die. No, it's, it's about a renewed creation and renewed bodies. And so going to heaven when you die is... Yes, represented a couple places in Scripture, mentioned briefly of being with the Lord or Jesus saying, you know, paradise. But that's not the main driving force of, of Easter, of the Christian message. It's resurrection. And for us to overly focus on going to heaven when we die is the equivalent of you winning an all-expense-paid trip to Disney World or wherever else you'd want to go, and you freaking out and being so excited about your layover in Dallas-Fort Worth. Oh, I can't wait to, you know, and obviously, you know, being in the presence of the Lord is going to be better than, you know, layover in Dallas. Jesus is going to be there. But all the same, our attention, the attention of the early church was not the presence of God forevermore. It's a new creation, renewed bodies, and a renewed world. As good as heaven is, the focus is resurrection. So when we begin to realize the resurrection, we find that matter matters. We find that new creation is dawned and we find the father of Jesus who raised him will do the same for us. And now with these three realizations before us, and I've been waiting for this, we're set up to really enjoy the irony of John's gospel in one part right there. Right in the middle of the story today, you might have noticed that strange, seemingly unnecessary line of Mary's interaction with the risen Jesus, supposing him to be the gardener. Mary surprisingly mistakes Jesus for the very identity we now on the other side of these realizations are able to see the very identity he embodies. On that first Easter, there was a new Adam raised up from the dirt who stands in the garden fashioned out of the chaos to work it and keep it. He is, as a scholar N.T. Wright calls him, the cosmic gardener who is cultivating a new life, a new order up from the fallow, broken ground of this world. 
It's a picture that you'll see behind me has captivated the images, the imaginations of artists throughout the ages. This idea of a Jesus with a straw hat and a shovel and a pitcher of water. Jesus the gardener. One of my favorites was published uh, or produced actually last year by San Diego artist Joel Briggs entitled The Gardener. You see it behind me now. In this portrait, we find Jesus there with shovel in hand. Sitting on the shovel is a dove with a a branch in its mouth. This is a callback to the story of Noah's Ark, when after the waters of death had receded, that the dove was the first sign that the new world was able to be entered out into. And so Jesus is not just the gardener. He's like this new Noah figure coming out. And in his other hand, he holds this new life to be planted. And if you take your attention off Jesus, you notice the surrounding uh, horizon is all this empty wasteland, and in the distance is a storm that is now past. And Jesus is here, prepared to get to work. Joel Briggs' reflections on his piece are just too good to pass, and uh, man, too well said to summarize. And so as we keep this portrait up, for you to consider, I just want to read uh, his thoughts, uh, what led him to uh, this painting. Joel says, I think my paintings may be a subconscious protest, For me, they decry cheap imitations of Christ. I have unknowingly been gifted. A plastic collection of bait and switch Jesuses. Messiah impersonators that tell me the maker of the universe is too disinterested in and disgusted by my earthly experience to provide me with needs intrinsic to my humanity. These Christs are too spiritual to care for the myriad and simple ways that brokenness has affected our very being in the world a global pandemic, economic instability, rampant systemic injustices, the genocide of people in a remote land I'll likely never be welcomed into, an ocean drowning in the irresponsible refuse of an endlessly consuming population, the declining mental health of a loved one who's been oppressed by years of unhealed festering trauma, and the scrounging survival of the homeless person who shelters in the alley behind my work building. These sufferings culminate like a hundred thousand little splinters, too deeply buried for any easy remedy. Just like that anxiety that constricts my chest by simply living on this spinning rock floating in the black void of space. These needs, big and small, are what weave the fabric of our humanity. In my daily sufferings with anxiety at the fragility of existence, a Christ who redeems me to an ambiguous half-existence on a floating nirvana is destructive. No, what I need is a Christ who cares for my humanness, the joys, struggles, needs, wounds, and delights. I need a Lord and Savior who's redeeming me in my humanness. I need a Christ with dirt under his fingernails and oxygen in his lungs who is bringing new order to the old chaos, new life to the old worn-out wastelands. This Christ is not erasing the human story. His death blow against the curse upon humanity is not the removal of my humanity. His final triumph is undying humanity. His physical resurrection in which human thriving is defined. Perhaps our visions of hope realized we're too informed by those cheap mimicries of Christ and their anemic visions of glory. The seemingly fragile promise of the inheritance of all creation is being held in the firm grasp of him who is both gardener and the first of the fruit of his own garden. Hope seems irrational to our human sensibilities, which are profoundly accustomed to death. Yet, the very same gardener tending those promises has ultimately and finally put death to death. 
As we close today, I wanna ask you again, what have you done with the empty tomb of Jesus? Have you begun to realize the resurrection? For some of you, have you realized that matter matters? Your body matters to the purposes and plans of God within this world. Knowing the world that we live in and the city that we live in, that for some of you, the, the constant onslaught of demands of your own body image is a constant of your ethnicity, of the separation of your body that you feel because of abuse or emptiness or addiction, the tears like we see, the weeping of Mary, the losses that you've suffered, the, 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 the disorientation within your own body and self, that resurrection means these things matter to God. And that God has not come to help you escape these things, but to find a renewal in the midst of them. Resurrection means your body, your life, this world is not something to escape, but in the hands of the good gardener is the soil of new life waiting to bloom. For others of you, this call to new creation, when you look over not just this world, but your own life, what you find is what seems to be a wasteland that is dead and empty and lifeless. And the good news of the empty tomb is you are the risen Jesus' cup of tea. He loves bringing new life out of dead things. And that means precisely for you. That as Paul wrote, that today what stands before you is if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And similarly, that call that the God and Father of Jesus can now be ours too. What this means is a hope after death and a hope in life here and now and a connection, a life of knowing as Father and God, the create, your creator, the God of love and life. And so all of this is written, as, as John says in, in chapter 20, just a few verses down from where we were today, John 20, verse 31, I have written these things so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so today, my prayer all week has been, like some of you, that today, whether in the songs that we've sung, in the reading of scriptures, or in my teaching, you have heard Jesus, like he did with Mary, calling your name. And if that is you today, I, I invite you to call on him as teacher and Lord, to fall before him and to say, would you bring new life out of the wasteland that is my life? Would you bring the resurrection life that is available not just in the future, but now into my dead places here? Now, Easter sermons growing up within the church regularly became an opportunity to kind of force people's decisions into like, you know, you know it's now or never, you better choose. And here's what I want to, I want to acknowledge that in this story, John and Peter both, they look at the tomb and they return home. They take time, but, but they don't just return home. They return home talking about it along the way. They return home and as they get there, they continue to talk and to consider and contemplate. So I don't want to drag anybody into something that you should, but I would say, what have you done with the resurrection claims? And though you may return home today, would you consider this? Would you pray if you were dragged along by a friend or family member today, would you talk to them? If you showed up, you got here because of our, you know, our, our big, fun, invitational friend, Google, and you got here because of that, and you don't have anyone that you're here with, but you're contemplating this. And you're, I'm not quite sure that I'm there yet, but I, I, I want to be, or I think I might be. Come and grab me, and let's, let's talk. I, coffee on me this week, and let's, let's geek out about the good hope of the resurrection as you consider and contemplate that more.
And for those of you that are already that are here that you would identify as a Christian, I would ask you to contemplate today, though you identify as a Christian, have you realized the resurrection? Does your life proclaim a sort of new creation dawning? A sort of matter matters way of life? I think for all of us today, the resurrection calls for us to contemplate, to consider what this means. And for those of you that would move today or continue in a proclamation that Jesus is the risen king, the key thing to hear in this story is that like Jesus says to Mary, you have a task before you to proclaim through your life and your words that there is a new creation dawning in the midst here. Like Mary says, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray.